Hi there, and welcome to the 2020 edition of the UAE Tech Podcast, a series of discussions on how technology is reshaping governance and economics in the United Arab Emirates. From our offices in Media City, Dubai, I'm John Lillywhite with Abu Abba Business. receiving significant VC investment across the region, often with little fanfare. From physical cash to digital ones and zeros, how we receive, send, invest and spend money is critical to, well, pretty much everything. There are two arguments about the nature of changes taking place across financial institutions. The first is a cyber-utopian argument. Centralized banks, guys in suits and the old players of the 20th century are all fading away. The future is blockchain and crypto powered. It's more free. You can hear this argument eloquently put by John McAfee in our first episode. It's a compelling vision of the future, which in many ways connects back to the original founding ideas of the internet. And if you grew up during the 2008 financial crisis in the West, it might be one you have sympathy with. But is it correct? History suggests that technologies like the abacus, debit, and entry accounting systems or the credit arrangements of the Bank of England in 1694 witnessed an upgrading of existing financial networks rather than parallel economic systems. As the UAE leans into the economy of the future, the epicenter of these conversations are taking place at the Dubai International Finance Center, or DIFC, a series of prestigious offices based in downtown Dubai. DIFC is administered by DFSA, the Dubai Financial Services Authority. Today we're talking with Ken Coghill, Associate Director, Head of Operational and Technology Risk Supervision, and Raif Al-Badiwi, 
Head of Cybersecurity at the DFSA. We'll start with a brief introduction for those outside of the UAE before getting into the regulatory tech and innovation questions that Ken and Rafe are encountering every day. Disruption, iteration and collaboration, rather than extrinsic revolution, seem to be appearing as the key transformational trends. Today we're talking with Ken Coghill and Raif Badewi from the DFSA, which is the Dubai Financial and Services Authority. Um, Raif and Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you, John. So, so just very simply, what is DFSA? What does it stand for and what does it do? Okay, so I'll, I'll start uh, with this one. The DFSA, the Dubai Financial Services Authority, we are the independent regulator for all financial services that are conducted in or from the Dubai International Financial Center. So we don't regulate financial services that operate in Dubai proper or in UAE. We, we, the DIFC is a free zone that sits within Dubai. And there are over 2,000 companies that operate, and there's 502 currently that are financial services companies that do require regulation, and we oversee those institutions. Those include banks, asset managers, uh, brokerages, and uh, reinsurers. Okay, great. And for those at a high level, yeah. right? And for those who are listening who are listening outside of the country, the DIFC is a beautiful um, building or series of buildings, I would guess, with some of the best sandwich shops and restaurants in town. Um, so, you know, it is, is a nice place to work. And it's not exactly um, the same vibe. as It's a slightly different vibe to some of the financial districts you might find in, in New York or, or London. It's also a place where other elements of the city sometimes go um, to socialize. And DIFC is the center of, is that the center of DFSA then? Is that when, where most of the activity is based? Uh, you mean by the center of, of DFSA, I mean, is DIFC where all the activities that we're overseeing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So everything, so our, our jurisdiction stops at the border of the center. So the center is, oh. at, at the moment, 110 acres, I believe, uh, approximately. Right. So everything that we regulate must be within those borders. So all the buildings are very tall. So there's a lot of businesses, so we can't go wide, we go up with everything. So, uh, so yeah. it's very convenient for us. We can we can walk right into an office to, to meet the firm, so it's very convenient to, to do the, the supervision. That makes sense. And is it correct, again, because I think this gives an insight in, into how the, how the UAE works and, and the city works in particular. So DIFC is a free zone, is that correct? Correct. And, and what, what, I mean, again, you know, um, a free zone, it's a very general question, but what is a free zone? Just again, for those listeners who are trying to understand how this all fits together. No, it's a very, very fair question, and it is something that, that, particularly from a regulatory point of view, can be very confusing to people outside the country. And we, we have this discussion with other regulators often. So you have the, the UAE, United Arab Emirates, and, and within the Arab Emirates, there is the seven Emirates, and Dubai being one. And there are over 60 different free zones uh, operating in the, in the country, and each has a different focus. The financial free zone focuses on financial business. And, and the reason for it coming about is it's the commercial law under which it operates primarily and then the ownership. So if you want to own a business in Dubai, you have to have a certain percentage of local ownership, 51% local owner. And uh, local commercial law operates under, under the Sharia law uh, framework. In the 
Dubai International Financial Center, we operate under English common law. So we have our own civil law system. Dubai Penal Code uh, applies, but under commercial law, it's an English common law system. We have our own court system. And there is 100% foreign ownership committed uh, within the center. So that, that's the basics of, of what the, the purpose of the free zone is. Right, that, that makes sense. Um, so Ken, you are Associate Director, Head of Operational and Technology Risk Supervision. Um, very quickly, what does that involve? So generally, it's, it's supervision of firms. Uh, and there's a, there's a few verticals underneath, underneath that. Uh, any firm that uh, ever see, first and foremost, is our regulatory sandbox program, which we call the Innovation Testing License Program. Uh, and I also oversee more broadly operational risk supervision, which includes cyber risk. So I've got a specialist unit that looks at, at how uh, our regulated institutions manage their own cyber risk. We then also have a pool of a group of regulated institutions that we supervise on, a, on an ongoing basis, uh, on what we call a close and continuous supervision basis. And those are firms that would fall in just generically what we would call the fintech category. So they're a technology-driven company. They may have either entered through our sandbox program or they would come through our conventional license, licensing process and we would provide the primary oversight of those institutions. So the expertise around the, the technology would sit with my team, expertise around cyber risk is, is within my team and operational risk more broadly. Now, we also do horizontal supervision across all of the institutions in the center. So we would provide a lead uh, direction around operational risk across all 500 institutions and the same for cyber risk supervision. So we've, we've got a vertical mandate and a horizontal mandate uh, for supervision. Well, there's a lot to talk about there. And um, one of the things I've definitely noticed since being back in the UAE um, was that, you know, I've been to the in and out of the DIFC for, for a number of years. And I remember, you know, five or to, to maybe even more, it might have even been, God, you know, eight years ago, walking around and seeing lots of, of banks and, and law firms, many of which I recognize from back home. And since being back, um, talking to other entrepreneurs and just getting a sense of what's going on in the city, the amount of activity around fintech and, and financial innovation has been really striking. Um, and it really seems to be um, starting to appear over at, at DIFC at quite a fast pace. Um, with that in mind, Rafe, um, I have that you lead the DFSA cybersecurity unit and that you oversee the management and operations of cyber threat intelligence platform. Again, very quickly, um, what does that involve? Sure, and so I'll touch on the role and then maybe touch on the, the initiative you just mentioned. Sure. So as a cybersecurity professional, um, um, uh, your duty is to um, prepare, plan, and carry out security measures and implement security controls to protect networks, assets, information against active or even potential threats. And, um, you know, this involves ensuring you're aware of recent trends, technologies, weaknesses, and threats, which are very dynamic, by the way, and constantly changing. Then, in summary, what you're trying to do is ensure that you and the entity you work for are prepared as much as possible for multitude of scenarios. Cyber criminals in general tend to go after entities and individuals that are least prepared. And surely you don't want to be, you know, the least prepared. Yeah. With yeah. regards to the threat intelligence sharing platform, and it's an initiative and by the DFSA, which is a subset of initiatives put together by the DFSA. And I guess Ken can elaborate more on this in a bit. And so the DFSA launched this initiative with an objective to help entities and, and aid entities in the IFC 
mature and elevate their cybersecurity measures and controls. And most professionals nowadays in the field came to the realization that we all need to support each other um, you know, in an attempt to combat cybercrime. And as mentioned earlier, um, all entities need to ensure they're prepared. So sharing information about what entity is seeing and observing with the community will ultimately help members of this community implement effective measures and ensure they're prepared. And that's what this initiative actually facilitates. Right. Um, I mean, there are a lot of organizations that, that we've been speaking with that are talking about cybersecurity. Um, but, you know, if there's one um, industry that, that definitely um, has a very good case for investing in cybersecurity, I guess, you know, it's, it's, it's finance and, and be it, you know, corporate or personal banking. Um, so I think, you know, that's something that we should touch on later, um, even if it's sensitive and a little bit complicated. Um, in terms of some of the regulations, it seems. So, again, just to get a sense um, for everyone of, of how the DIFC works and, and, and what um, kind of day-to-day -day, um, business looks like. So, when either of you goes into the office, Ken or Rafe, what, what does an average day look like? What are the kind of problems that you're both looking at? So from a day-to-day -day basis, not necessarily the problems we're looking at, but so we've got the two verticals of looking specifically at institutions and then doing our horizontal work. So from a day-to-day -day basis, we're engaging with the institutions that, that we supervise. Uh, there, are, there are daily communications with, with multiple institutions, understanding what, what they are seeing happen. Uh, if there's any particular issues with them in, in operating their business, if there's any particular risks that they're seeing that they, that they are, are dealing with that we need to be aware of those communications are ongoing and then from a daily basis we're we're monitoring developments in the market and, and developments across uh, the industry to understand where those may be impactful to the, the firms that we're supervising and then that feeds into daily discussions policy discussions around our, our current position on certain topics so with fintech there's always a daily a discussion around uh, blockchain distributed ledger ai machine learning and and uh, what what sort of risks are emerging within our institutions in those particular areas. Uh, and then we're always monitoring from daily where standard setter statements are being made about the positions. We're always scanning what other regulators are, are, are saying and what issues are arising with other regulators. So it, uh, our days are, are anything but uh, what, what is often thought of as boring regulatory work. Uh, it's, and, and anymore, it's becoming a lot busier for us with the fintech developments because every day there's something new something right. new to be thinking about so every every morning you turn on the news and you get an idea of the kind of things we're going to be talking about uh, right day. it's almost on a daily basis that, that it's happening so so technology is really kind of reshaping um the environment you guys are working in it, to a point yeah there there is some some reshaping happening a, ai is doing that ai is is changing who is making decisions uh, wow. It raises questions about uh, how are decisions being made, how are, how are clients being dealt with, information is being given to them, on what basis is that being given, and that poses a lot of questions for us as regulators. How do we, how do we, how do we supervise that kind of activity? Who's accountable uh, well, for well, that? So yeah, from that sense, there is a reshaping that's happening. Yeah, I mean that even just what you said is is kind of fascinating because on this series we've had two two sort of discussions and at one point possibly even an argument with, with one very well-known um, blockchain developer who said the fundamentals of the financial industry, the entire basis of it is, is changing to an extent where it will never be the same again. And our point was, well, is that true? Isn't it that 
new technologies are reshaping, yes, elements of, of how financial systems work, but the fundamentals, you know, trust, fairness, um, you know, the ability to, to make sure that all the activity that is happening is, is legitimate, um, taxation, you know, um, all of the kind of checks and balances that you need for a thriving financial system surely still need to be there in place. And, and you seem to have, based on, on what we've been discussing in the series, two arguments. You have some, you know, some of the entrepreneurs who are coming at this from the outside in saying, you know, these systems will change and, you know, centralized um, financial services are no more. And then you do have the argument that, you know, AI is, is changing some of our processes. Blockchain is, um, you know, changing maybe the way we might move money around in the future. But um, the, the basis of the financial systems, the way, you know, um, trust is encoded and the way individuals and corporations use these systems, in, in a way, the fundamentals won't be that different as in, to some extent, as in law. I mean, what do you both think of that argument? I, I agree with you completely. I think the, and it, some of this depends on some of the statements how people are defining some of the terms, these fundamentals and, and the term disruption. I, I agree with you completely. The, 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 from my perspective, the fundamentals, they aren't going to change. We still have to be concerned with financial stability. We still have to be concerned with the integrity of the market. We still have to be concerned with the protection of the consumers who are using the financial services. That Those objectives of ours don't change, whether you're doing this through a traditional bricks-and-mortar bank, whether you're doing it through a digital bank, or you're doing it through some distributed type of exchange ledger. That doesn't change. We still have to make sure those users are protected, and it's still a financial function, whether it's being performed across a blockchain or uh, through a, a traditional banking service. Uh, technologists uh, always do say everything is going to uh, change, and they use it in the context of disruption. We're getting, we're going to take away the banking, the banks, and the banks will be no more. And, and I, you know, I hesitate to take a, a position on that. Uh, we'd rather play the middle as the regulator and ask the question, well, exactly how and, and, and what I look at it, and what's the risk when that happens? I mean, banks perform a critical function to an economy. They, they, they take money from, 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 from in deposits and they lend that money out to support daily functions. Is the distributed ledger replacing that function? Well, it's not going to replace the function. The function is still needed. Would it, will it do it in a different type of way? Maybe. And, and will it work? Maybe. What we've seen over the last few years is there was two years ago, big push. Everything was going to be disrupted. Banks were going to go away. Payment systems were going to be disrupted. Everything was going to be done through the blockchain. And what we've seen through our, our fintech programs, both our sandbox program and through the DIFC high programs, is it's moved much more from a disruption to we want to take down the banks and replace them to much more collaboration with the banks. I think there's, there has been a more of a recognition on the part of the banks that they do need to look a lot more at what the fintechs are doing. Some of, this, some of these innovations have stopped them, and the innovators have realized in, in, in many instances that they do need to work with the banks. The banks have an infrastructure in place. Uh, simply having a regulatory uh, framework in place isn't as simple as, as, as saying we've got some funding, we're going to build one. It's, it's a big undertaking, particularly for a bank. So innovators have found that they're trying to develop these new blockchain environments, distributed exchanges. The regulatory infrastructure still needs to be there. Uh, there are still base regulatory requirements that you're going to need to meet. Consumers want us to have those requirements. Investors want us to have those requirements. We, we, we maintain the, the 
trust in the system by having those requirements in place and by us supervising them. So yeah, the, the notion that, that all this goes away because blockchain is going to disrupt the entire system and create these, this self-regulating environment, I think is a, is a tough argument to make. Yeah, it does seem to be that, that we're going into the direction of synergy where, you know, yes, technologies with a disruptive potential like AI or machine learning or uh, blockchain are evolving the system, um, but not necessarily completely replacing it. Um, and, and Rafe, I just wanted to ask you, so, uh, you know, two questions on this. One, um, what are the cybersecurity, the main cybersecurity issues that you work on from day to day? And then second question, um, what are the emerging cybersecurity issues where these you know, new emerging technologies might be involved? Sure, um, and I guess from day-to-day -day operation, um, you know, as a cybersecurity, you need to look at the operations and that involves, like I said earlier, ensuring that um, you know, you're kept up to date with what's changing. And, you know, and as a matter of fact, in the last three months, so many weaknesses um, um, came out um, um, and surfaced um, uh, that had to actually be looked at. So when you're looking at um, whether you're resilient or you're ready, you need to ensure that your, you know, your entity is patched and um, you're up to date with those patches. Um, uh, those are issues that you know, are usually out of one's control because it's to do with the technologies you're using. Um, you know, on the other side, um, ensuring that um, policies are in place, governance, ensuring that um, you, you know you keep an eye on events and um, attempts, and you implement measures um, that could improve the cybersecurity resilience. On the emerging technologies, and, um, and you know, to touch on that, and I guess I'm going to comment on it from a cyber perspective. Mm. There's definitely attempt, um, you know, recently in the last year or two to deploy technologies such as AI to um, enhance and aid those cybersecurity technologies. Um, I guess it's still in the early stages and there's been some successful attempts, but that is, you know, dynamically changing. And I guess it could be um, easier to deploy such technologies because, um, you know, cyber is a technology at the end of the day um, compared to the financial industry. So. Um, the acceptability, I think, will be a lot easier. So I definitely see some great potential in how those technologies are deployed. And, you know, we in the DFSA do utilize technologies that actually do make use of AI, and we're seeing the benefits. That's fascinating. Can you quickly just give us a, a, a very basic explanation of what that AI technology is? You mentioned cyber AI or something like that. How does that yeah. work? How is that being interpreted? So, so I think the, the best, in my opinion, the best um, deployment of such technologies is by understanding user behavior. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, if, if you were to manually do it or get systems to understand how, how um, um, a human operates and, you know, being what time they log in, what kind of activities do they perform as part of their day-to-day -day job and, and building a model to then, with this model, you're able to um, identify abnormalities and things that are out of the norm. And I see this as one of the really most um, useful use cases, and, and, um, and a lot of technologies are actually making use of it. Right, and you know when I when I again when I when I came back to Dubai, um, I'm not sure if this is the case in the GCC, but but I do know that in the Middle East generally, the banking industry has quite a conservative reputation in part because of Sharia and, and the credit arrangements, but just generally also in terms of it, you know, it's, it's outward looking attitudes and the way money is lent and, and all of that um, kind of thing. You know, it's one reason that's not a, that's not a criticism. It's one reason that the banks here 
performed relatively well during the 2008 financial crisis. But coming back, it's, it is really interesting to see fintech being spoken about so often. So for example, I recently spoke to someone that said the two largest investments in Saudi Arabia this year in terms of the tech industry were in fintech and were in e-commerce. And, and, and both of those, I, I guess, make, make sense. But just zooming out, why is it you both think fintech is becoming such an emerging market and is becoming so important? Well, the, I think the, to start with that is to understand what's driving it. So mm. 40 years ago, banks came up with a great idea of credit cards and debit cards and they, and they pushed them out to their clients. Jump forward to now, the, the, the consumers are now driving. They're, they're pushing the drive for innovation. They're telling the banks what it is, is that they want. And the banks are now looking for those solutions. They're developing house and they're, they're looking externally. Uh, and, and now, and then you have new developments like blockchain. And in, in a sense, blockchain itself was created before there was, the, in a sense, the, the idea of what it would be, what it would be for. It was created and Bitcoin was come about. And then over the years, people have looked at ways to, de to deploy that. There's always going to be a need to improve the client's user experience, include the speed of processes. The world's becoming more global. Uh, UAE is number two for money, money remittances uh, globally. There's billions of dollars every year that goes from UAE to, to Philippines to India. There's a need to get the money there faster, cheaper. And customers are, are demanding this of financial institutions. And the fintechs are stepping in and saying, we have, we have an idea, a way to do that. Uh, and that, that is a large part of what's, of what's driving it. And where, where we're seeing it is in payments, the, the biggest drive for it. Payments, uh, blockchain is still, it gets mentioned a lot, blockchain, there is still a lot of work to be done on where the, where the real use case is for it. Uh, initially, a lot of the drive was around securities. Uh, and you see a lot of issuance of ICOs, alternative means of, of raising funding for, for SMEs. Uh, unfortunately, there was a lot of bad activity in the ICO market. It's, uh, in most countries, it's not a regulated space. And that's put a bit of a stain on the, on the legitimate securities token offerings business. And now we've seen a shift away from that. And blockchain is being used more now to, to uh, enhance the, some of the operational ends of securities offerings. So from the, the settlement process uh, is, is becoming more efficient through that. So there, there are need just to speed up the processes I think is, is where we mostly see it occurring. It's all about doing things faster. Uh, everybody, we've become used to this internet age when they click on something and want it to happen. I don't want to wait three days anymore from, to send money from, from here to the U.S. and have it clear to my bank account. Uh, why can't it be there in five seconds? I can, I can log on to a U.S. website in, in, in a click of a finger. And consumers want that now with, with their services. Right. Thank you for that. I mean, that's, that's a really interesting um, summary of, of some of the use cases of fintech. Um, I, I always get frustrated by, by geo restrictions. You know, if I want to download a song or, or watch a video on Netflix and it's not available in my region, it always frustrates me because it always seems yep. to, you know, it doesn't seem to make sense for a global internet to have those kind of artificial barriers based on physical territories. And the same with, with international transfers. You know, you do think, hey, we're in 2020. Why, why is this transfer taking me? Um, you know, four days, isn't there, a, or, or more than that, you know, six to seven days if, it, if you're at a weekend. Why isn't there a way of, you know, vetting this and auditing it and making sure everything's safe and then putting it in my account within a couple of minutes? Um, but I also realized that, as you said, you know, ICOs and, and some of these new systems um, promised a lot, but, but were in essence, you know, in, in, 
in other ways also had a lot of uh, security flaws and a lot of trust problems and um, there were some bad actors in, in the ICO community and in, and in the crypto community, actually. Um, you, you raise a good point about, about the, the, sort of the, the barriers to doing things globally. Uh, and this, this is an interesting point for a lot of the innovators. The, the slowness is not necessarily always in the process. You know, uh, it's not necessarily because a bank can't move money across borders fast. There, there are legal impediments to doing it. Right. Right. Uh, and, and a new and a new innovation isn't going to change that legal impediment. There, right. there, are, there are there are trade restrictions in place. Those yeah. don't change just because somebody invented a new process to move to move a document and product faster. Uh, the traditional players could always do it. They're just impeded the same in the same sense. Right. That that again, that's really interesting. It also shows how the the kind of global regulatory environment shapes these things. So. I did a bit of work for, for a group in Paris once called the Jurisdiction on the Internet, on the Internet um, Project. And, and their whole point was, as you just said, um, you know, e-commerce within, within Europe, despite the, the European Union rules, you know, from shipping an Amazon parcel from France into Italy is still extremely difficult. Um, and, and they said, again, it's not so much a technical problem if we wanted to DHL is to Italy, it could get there pretty quickly, you know. But the problem is that the the, the border controls and the regulatory environment and, and the taxation agreements are still there. Um, and, and, you know, that, that all of that needs to be checked and, and ticked off before it arrives in Italy, and that's why you're paying extra. Um, and I guess from what you just said, you know, there's similar due diligence mechanisms in, in, in banking and in the international system that we're just not aware of as consumers and we don't see. Um, so, I mean, Rafe, do you, in terms of fintech, I mean, do you see, as someone working in cybersecurity, do you see opportunities there for enhanced cybersecurity systems in the future? Or are you looking at this thinking, oh, you know, this is some way away before we can feel confident about some of these technologies? No, I think um, I would definitely agree that it should enhance. Um, I guess um, uh, it goes back to the background of those entities or the founders of those entities. Technology is embedded as part of their solution, and so is cybersecurity in most most cases. So, um, you know, compared to the traditional products or systems, and cybersecurity in most cases in fintechs are actually considered and well considered and thought of because um, um, uh, you know it's a 2020 product; it's not a product from 10 years ago. So. Um, it's well thought of, and, and I guess to a point where they even ensure that their coding, you know, ensures secure best practices and frameworks. Uh, I think Ken can maybe comment um, more on that since he's more involved in the vetting of those. Hmm. Yeah, cyber cyber risk is is an area we are increasing our focus on, and I mentioned that we we have a my team. I've got a specialist unit looks at cyber. It, it's it, the problem with cyber risk for many institutions and generally the smaller ones that it's just continually changing and the threat landscape is different from day to day and keeping up with it is very problematic for smaller institutions banks larger ones they they've they have the facilities to to manage that change they have the resources to do it and it's it's much harder for the smaller ones and particularly the fintechs now they're technology based they, they understand the technology but it, it's an entirely different uh, thing to deal with the cyber risk piece of it. Uh, it requires entirely different resources, and that that's a, an area where we've, we've we're stepping in to try and assist with that, with particularly with the threat intelligence platform, to to aid with creating 
creating the conversation between institutions, getting the discussion going, providing the information to at least get firms to the point where they're aware of what the threats are. And then the next stage, and we are, we are in the process now, we've conducted a thematic to get a, a sense of where our firms are positioned in the center in their, in their understanding of risk and how they're mitigating them. The next stage is to put out some guidance from our end on what we think firms, uh, what we'd expect firms to be to be doing to mitigate those those risks. Right, and it must be a tough task because at the same time, you know, um, policymakers or individuals working in your industry have to keep pace with technology. So it's a little bit embarrassing, but before I came um, to Dubai, I was based in Jordan, which in some ways has a great um, innovation hub and, and very fast internet and good telecommunications. But one area where it's definitely a few years behind is in, is in financial services. And, you know, a lot of the, the payment systems, sometimes a lot of outlets and stores don't even accept Visa. And um, so when I came back to Dubai, I saw everyone paying with their phones. And I see this in the UK a lot. And, you know, you just don't do that in Jordan. So I watched people do this and thought, what the hell are they doing? They're paying with their phones. So I put my card on, you know, onto my iPhone. And I realized that using the fingerprint identity button on the iPhone, you, you can actually, that's your verification process. You don't use your pen. You put your finger on the phone and you pay for an item using smart pay on your iPhone. Um, and, you know, that technology in a way, you know, depends on contactless, but it also depends on, on, on the, the fingerprint recognition technology on the iPhone. So it's kind of two or three different technologies integrated together in a really interesting way with security as, you know, perhaps the key offering, it's, you know, apart from convenience, because you've always got your phone with you. Um, but if you're a policymaker or if you're someone, you know, working and, and trying to understand how secure these things are, it must be moving at a rapid pace. Um, now I really like, you know, basically paying with the phone and, and, and using the fingerprint. Um, but again, it's not something that, that I would have predicted, um, you know, a long time ago that, that I'd be paying for things with a mobile phone. Yeah, and this, this is a key challenge for us, this, this, this consumes many of our days discussing how do we control these risks and not just how do we control them, but what are the risks around it? And this, this gets right to the heart of data protection. Your, mm. your, your, your thumbprint is the access point to a lot of information about you. Uh, and these applications require a lot of different vendors. Mm. So where uh, traditionally I give you a credit card, uh, somebody would, would issue that, bank would issue that credit card, uh, a vendor swipes it, and there might be a a service provider on the other end that manages the payment. Well, now you've entered new, new vendors in the process that are controlling the data around your thumbprint. They're, they're storing that information, doing the validation against it. Well, who are these vendors? Uh, and what are the protections that they have around the data that, that they're using? And not all of them fall within our regulatory sphere. Uh, right. We mm. regulate the, the entity who, is, who has applied that, uh, offered that app on their service, the bank that's using the fingerprint protection, but we don't regulate the, the, the technology or the, the vendor that developed it. So we have to put more emphasis on how the banks are, and the financial institutions aren't just banks, but how they're, how they're assessing those vendors that they're using and how are they monitoring them, to what standard are they requiring those vendors to operate from their, from their cyber controls. Uh, and, and there's been, you know, the pandemic has, has put a lot more focus on, on much of this because things have, have there's been a much harder push to go uh, to, the, the uh, paperless uh, activity, so no more cash uh, to use the, the electronic methods. 
And it's the same issue around identification. Traditionally, financial institutions would meet the person face-to-face -face before they, they took them on as a client. And now you don't even meet the person face-to-face, -face, but you can't with a lot of the, the restrictions. So now you have to identify this person and accept that their thumbprint is there. So there's a number of participants that have to be involved in this process. And you have to identify where, where does the truth begin with this identification? And then how are we protecting all the information on the back end? And where is it going? What's it being used for? Yeah, and ID tech is, is a whole other policy to debate. And, and, and you know, some of the, the, the blockchain and the, the crypto community um, believe that anonymity in cyberspace is, is a critical component of freedom. Um, and there's some, some, some reasonable arguments for that um, if you go through history. But, but of course, from a financial perspective or, or an entrepreneurship perspective, um, you know, ID, yes. ID technologies can also leverage entire new industries. And, and, and what's interesting is that this discussion we're having has such massive implications for the ability of an entrepreneur to put an app on a phone and have other people pay for it or to sell a game, uh, you know, some software online and to be able to create a business out of it. Really, a lot of the issues um, you and Rafe are looking at aren't just restricted to your industry. They're a critical importance to the entire economy um, in the UAE. So, um, you know, it's, it's a really big debate over some of this stuff. No, that's true. And it's, it's, it's not uh, just financial services centric. Like these, these, these technologies are much broader and being used much broader. Uh, and it's, it, it's interesting point on the privacy. And I, and I agree with you. I, I, you should expect a certain level of privacy, but then you also have to accept a certain level of, uh, of not having the privacy, particularly depending on what you want to do with, it, with that app. And in financial services, there's a lot of debate or comments, at least, and I hear this from, from a lot of the tech sector often, why do the regulators need to see all this information? Well, because this goes back to our objectives didn't change just because you've adopted an app now that allows a, a, your client to pay with an electronic application rather than cash. We still have to know where the money came from. We still have to monitor where the money's going. Now, we don't monitor that real time. We put that on the banks. But, but somebody has to be aware of that transaction down to the, to the finite detail. So there is a level of, of there are limits to privacy. Uh, and, and for good reason. doesn't mean we should publish information in the paper, but, but somebody has to be monitoring what you're doing on there. Uh, and the app doesn't change that. Right. And, and preparing for this interview, I came um, in contact with a phrase that I'd never heard before, but I, I, really, I really like it. It's called RegTech, so regulation tech. Um, does either you or, or Rife want to explain kind of what that is and what, you know, I, I have no experience of that. So, so how is that being put together? So reg, reg tech is, is simply the use of technology to meet your regulatory obligations. Okay. Now, the other side of that is subtech. Us as regulators using technology to perform our supervisory function. Wow. So reg tech solutions, for example, client, the identification, using a technology to use biometrics to identify a client. Rather than meeting the client face-to-face, -face, having him show you his passport, now there are technologies that allow you to do that over, over a webcam. And there right. are different technologies that, that can monitor whether that person on the other side of the webcam is actually the person that's in the photograph and, and they can do, the technologies can do some validation on the documents that they're showing you electronically. That's a form of reg tech. Uh, the transaction monitoring that goes behind the, the flows of, of funds the digitization of, of that monitoring and using AI, that's, those, are, those are forms of reg tech. Okay. No, that makes total sense. And um, I had that experience here. You know, I opened a bank account here, and um, 
the, the ID process and the vetting process, obviously it was during COVID-19, so it's a little bit more difficult, but a vast amount of it was online um, or, you know, over, over the phone. Um, and I've never seen that before. Um, so things are clearly changing um, in, you know, the, the, the banks generally, particularly in the UAE. Um, on that note, so when I was, you know, God, it makes me sound ancient, but when I graduated from university, if you, if you wanted to go into a bank uh, or work in, in financial services, it wasn't that glamorous and you had to really care about, uh, about numbers and, and you didn't really have to be in, too interested in, in technology or systems or, um, you know, entrepreneurship, innovative thinking, um, policy discussions, understanding how different technologies could be layered. Um, but talking to you both, it seems fairly clear that, that there is a new element that has moved in very, very fast. So in terms of operational resilience and training, how are you, you know, working with other organizations in the public or private sector or, or working to hire a new generation? Um, of, of graduates or talent and bringing them into DFSA? Yeah, so in the, in the DFSA, we, we have a program called our Tomorrow's Regulatory Leaders Program. And it, it's a program for UAE graduates, for Emiratis uh, in particular. Uh, we bring in a cohort of them every other year, and it's a, it's a two-year-long program, and we will put them through training. To, they will go through all of our different processes through the DFSA, both internal operational processes, through our legal and enforcement. They will spend time in our supervision department going through our different teams. And they will sit in the banking supervision. They will go through insurance supervision. They will go through my team on the operational technology risks. They will, they will work with the authorizations team. We we're dealing with firms that want to get licensed and how we do those processes. So we spend two years working them through that program uh, and to bring them in and that, that in the Part of the, the focus of that is, is to one, maintain the sustainability of, of what we're doing, but also bring in, brings in the fresh thought, the, the uh, fresh blood, so to speak, into the organization and the, the younger, uh, say, uh, broader thinkers around technology. So it, it, it's, we have a constant refresh uh, of, of the talent that, that's in the, in the organization. Right, and DIFC um, seems to be changing too. So I remember when I used to go there, you know, it's, it's one of the, the few areas of the city where everyone's walking around in, in a suit. And you have a lot of the same, you know, outlets that, that you find in London. But since being back, I've bumped into a couple of people from a community called The Hive, um, which is kind, I know it's, it's, it's semi-affiliated, I think. I'm not entirely sure. And I think we might have a podcast with, with them at some point in the future. But it does kind of show how the the community at, at DIFC um, is slowly evolving because you seem to have a lot of this, you know, innovation community. There's a co-working space there now. So it does suggest the culture itself is changing in the financial industries and that there is a kind of need to look at uh, disruption or look at um, new ways of, of providing services. Oh, yeah, de uh, definitely so. It's uh, in all, all around UAE. Uh, is that way so the, the, in the DIFC is is, is following on, on the, in the same front so yeah, and in the UAE you've got the, the Dubai Future Foundation that is all about supporting broad innovation and in the DIFC we have the Hive which focuses mostly on, on financial innovation uh, the DIFC has now created aside from Hive a co-working space that, that is goes beyond just financial innovation but also about technology more broadly innovation uh, and we work pretty closely with with the Hive is uh, I think we're approaching 200 uh, 
companies that are operating through there now, certainly more than that have gone through it. And through that program, they've got the accelerator program, uh, which is the, the flagship program where they put them in touch with local mentors. The Hive has over 50 partners at the moment, uh, and they include the local banks, the local insurers, the uh, local Islamic finance institutions, and they will mentor the, the, the fintech startups through the program, work with them, and help them understand where their product fits within the market what the trajectory for the progression of the product could be, they will, there is assistance in helping them meet financiers through the program as well. Uh, that, that program is, is entirely about uh, looking at the, I'll say, probably the wrong way to put it, but I guess the, the younger generation of, of the financial industry, probably not the right way to say that because it is, is interesting. I saw a statistic that actually the average age of, of a fintech entrepreneur is, I believe, in his 40s. Uh, Though when you walk through the hive, it doesn't tend to look that way. They, 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 the entrepreneurs seem to age very well because they do look a lot younger. But uh, I did see that statistic uh, somewhere. You know, the DIC is, is very much in, in fintech, the expansion of the DIC in the future of finance looking forward. They're very much putting focus on the innovation side of it because the future finance is, is where the growth is going to be. The traditional services aren't going to go away, but they are, they are certainly going to be enhanced and, and they are going to develop. And, and it is going to take uh, innovative people to do that. Uh, and the DIC is very much supportive of that. Well, that, that explains how the, how the vibe does seem to be changing out there. So I guess to finish today, um, I thought we could conclude things by you know, asking each of you, what are the changes or the, or the most exciting things you hope to happen? In the industry here in the UAE, uh, you know, over the next five to ten years. Um, so, um, Ken, I mean, what what are the changes that you're most excited about that are, that are hopefully coming soon or on the horizon? Well, I think artificial intelligence has has a lot to offer. Uh, there 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 are particularly say in the area of of anti, of anti money laundering, monitoring uh, transaction activity. It's going to present a lot of challenges. I was talking about the bias that potentially enters into the decision-making process and where the accountability is at. But I think there is a there is a lot to be gained uh, from the implementation of that. Uh, there are developments that are the, the, the concept of sharing data without sharing data. It's very difficult to share data across borders, and in doing that makes it very difficult to monitor the flows of funds. But some of these programs are now being developed that are allowing and enabling uh, certain attributes of, of activity to be shared across uh, different platforms. And those attributes can then be aggregated to identify a trend. And then through that, certain uh, regulatory requests can be sent to different regulators to, to identify, uh, and this can be done between banks as, as well, to narrow in on what the particular fund flow is that, that is suspicious. So a suspicious transaction monitor can be difficult across border, but the, the, these, uh, the AI functions are, are helping with that. And, and the other area that I think is is in digital assets. Blockchain is exciting, the things that are happening with it. They're enabling vast improvements in the, in the onboarding experience, as you mentioned during the, the pandemic, things were done remotely. A lot of that is now being pushed through distributed ledger technologies. Uh, the DIFC itself is partnering with, with a company that is uh, there. They have built a KYC, a digital KYC platform we're also working with uh, Smart Dubai is also doing one with local banks on, uh, on the UAE side as well. And I think that holds a tremendous amount of, prog of, of a promise for the consumer. If I can take my identity 
and I can allow it to be put on this on this blockchain on the distributed ledger and have that shared with the banks when I want to open a new banking relationship and I don't have to walk in and provide all my documents over and over again. That's a that's a, a great thing. And when you support that with the UAE pass, uh, I, I think those are, that's going to be a very exciting trend, uh, trend transition for for the UAE. Now that's already in process, but as that as that gets much bigger adoption, that's uh, going to streamline a lot of very painstaking manual processes for the industry. Yeah, and the UAE pass is is something we're hoping to talk about um, in a in a future episode as well. But how that gets laid in into blockchain and and the blockchain use case that you just discussed, um, you know, it is great to see that, that, that coming, if not, I, I think one bank may have already launched um, a, an MVP or beta version of that. Um, but that does look very exciting. Um, Rafe, how about you? Um, what, what do you think the next five years will bring? What are the technologies you're most excited about from a cybersecurity perspective or any other perspective? I guess, yeah, um, you know, maybe touch on maybe what I would like to see um, and, you know, you know, come from, from a cyber um, background, um, I'm going to be biased. So, well, <laughs> you know, I'd like to see some more on the cyber innovation in the UAE. So venues that can empower and trigger innovative ideas that can improve the landscape and, um, you know, focus more on what the UAE can maybe add and deliver and add value to in the cyberspace, you know, with most um, um, technologies coming from abroad. I definitely see some um, potential um, in, in the UAE. You know, there's some great local communities in the UAE that are very active. You know, I'd, I'd really love to see that grow and develop and um, turn into something um, like um, a product or a venue that can actually produce some valuable um, and ideas and um, solutions to, to, to the cyber issue. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting because in, in the private sector and um, the policy sector, there is a, there seems to be a lot of activity going on in cybersecurity and in in regulation. Um, and yet, you know, the entrepreneurs, I think, for understandable reasons, are, are you know focused on on the big ticket, um, you know, fintech, um, blockchain-based payment systems, and 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 identity technologies. But you know, cybersecurity and 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 regulation tech also seem to be two very very important areas for a lot of these. Um, services or, or these fintech solutions to, to accelerate because um, as we've discussed today and um, they do depend on, on, on regulation or, or making sure that there are due diligence checks and balances um, so you know um, there's so much more we could talk about but um, Ken Cockhill and Rafe Badiwi thank you so much for your time today um, and thank you so much for talking to us about what the Dubai Financial Services Authority is up to here in the UAE. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, John. Pleasure. Thank, thank you so much, um, John, for having us. Thank you.